Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And I'm extraordinarily thrilled to have Alan Gibson. Alan's currently the Director of Legal and Compliance Innovation at Microsoft. I've wanted to have him on a podcast for a long time, and now that's finally come to fruition. So, Alan, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you for having me. It has been a while, so I'm glad that we were able to make it happen. Alan, could you tell the audience a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, I like to think that I have a unique and interesting background, primarily because I've been in both the business and in legal and compliance. But to summarize the journey quickly is I was a liberal arts major coming out of a a small college up in the Northwest, which led me to a management training program decades ago. And it set me a little bit on my journey to becoming a compliance professional and a legal professional in that as as part of my journey, I, I was an executive training program at Sears, Roebuck and Company back in the day. And I'll always remember that one of the rotations I went through was a loss prevention rotation where we were concerned about fraudulent activities and inventory protection and dealing with people who were concerned about catching shoplifters. And so they were, they were using cameras back in the day to watch people stealing stuff and then catching them when they went into the parking lot. And I asked a question at that point in time about wouldn't it make sense to put preventative measures in place to prevent them from stealing versus just catching them once they they stole. So looking back decades, I think that set me on my course to becoming a compliance professional. But after going through the training, the training program, I decided to go back to uh, business school where uh, I got my MBA and then started my own company which was primarily focused on the sales and marketing of of different types of uh, building materials, both domestic and internationally, that I sold out to my partner to go to law school to become a deal lawyer. The best part of having my own company was doing all sorts of really interesting deals. So I decided I wanted to be a deal lawyer. And so I went into private practice with Ori Carrington and Sutcliffe for several years before a good friend of mine from the firm landed out at Microsoft. And he gave me a call a couple months later and asked me if I was tired of being a a hired gun for a big law firm and wanted to come in-house and uh, leverage my business experience and go deep with a client, which is what I did. And I joined Microsoft about 17 years ago as a frontline commercial attorney. And I was focused on sales, marketing, uh, antitrust work. And I did that for several years as I learned about a lot about how Microsoft made money and the risks that existed in our business. When uh, I left the legal department and worked in business development, where I was really focused on incubating new business models and emerging technologies to help bridge the digital divide, So I spent several years focused on issues associated with operations, pricing, policy, licensing, distribution, 
all sorts of really, really fun and interesting work that then led me into a role in commercial operations where I was helping Microsoft reimagine how we launched products and programs, which led me back to the legal department about seven years ago. And seven years ago, I became a compliance professional and joined what we were calling at that point in time, the Office of Legal Compliance. And in the Office of Legal Compliance, uh, I was primarily focused on helping the company respond to Foreign Corrupt Practices Act investigation in response to questions about our channel partner business model, especially in some of our overseas markets. And I was focused on supporting the remediation and enhancing controls of what we were discovering as part of those investigations. Did that for several years, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but I recently left the legal department and actually moved over into the business where I continue to focus on using technology to manage compliance and legal risks. Ellen, one of the things that I think you're most well known for in the compliance community from your time in compliance at Microsoft was really helping to design, create, and implement a data analytics program for compliance, but really for the business. I was wondering if you could describe that process that you guys went through. Yeah. And so that goes right back to the Department of Justice investigations. As we were going through that process, we were on this journey to enhance our controls. And as we went through it, what we were really focused on is getting a handle on which of our sales agreements and which of our channel partners created the most corruption risk for Microsoft. And then what we may do to manage those risks. As we went through the process, there were a couple of inflection points. One, we had a new CEO, Satya Nadella, who was focused on drive, creating a data-driven culture. And we really tried to embrace that ethos as the compliance program. But where it really played out is as we went through the investigations and we were reviewing uh, transactions and third parties, it was the classic data opportunity in that, wow, we looked at it and it's like, there were signals in the data that if we had taken advantage of them, that may have indicated that our risk of corruption or, or non-compliance was going up. And so I was one of the people that was tasked with leveraging our quote-unquote strength in big data analytics to create an early warning and monitoring system for a defined set of compliance risks for Microsoft. What that actually means is how do we risk score or identify which sales contracts and which third parties created the most corruption risk for Microsoft? And so our compliance team partnered closely with our finance, internal audit, and our business team to figure out how we could use the data that we were collecting in our sales contracts and from our third parties to create this early warning and monitoring system to identify which contracts needed to be routed for additional compliance oversight. And it was really about using the data to identify what's risky, explain why it's risky. And then finally, we built a process around it about 
what you did when you identified that risk. I can remember uh, discussing some of this with you early on in the process, and you were just uh, to the point where you were identifying how to use the data analytics, or I should probably say how the business unit could use the data. Could you describe how the business unit, the frontline guys and salespeople from Microsoft was able to use this data? Yeah, I'll break it out into really a two-step process. One, we were one of the first companies, I like to think, that were really thinking about solving the problem through the use of analytics. But because we didn't have a lot of other companies we could compare ourselves to, we really had to test our hypothesis that we could take a data-driven approach to identify which of our sales contracts created the most risk for us. So what we did in the process that we followed is we had an understanding of our corruption risk. Then we went to what are the themes and schemes that would indicate the presence of that risk. And so for us relying on a channel model, resellers, where we would offer discounts and incentives to third parties to resell our products, we had to get an understanding of what the signal would look like, excessive discounts, for example, that would be creating the risk. And then we would go to what data would go into that signal that would identify the presence of that theme and scheme. And then finally creating the algorithms that would combine to predict those contracts or those third parties. But we didn't have a track record of whether this sort of approach would work. What we had to do is test the algorithm against historic sales transactions, first to see if it would identify the sorts of sales contracts or third parties that created the most risk for Microsoft. And once we were comfortable that it was able to perform that way, what we did is start to make it become more real-time. We proved out to the business that we were identifying that risky sales contracts and third parties Once we were comfortable that it performed on historic transactions, we started to build it into our business process so that the business could use it to manage risk as sales contracts or as third parties work their way through our sales channel or engage with Microsoft. So let me give you an example. Is a Microsoft employee or a partner requests a discount and goes into our CRM system and and requests a price quote. At that point in time, we can start making a call to our compliance data lake that produces a, a risk score for that sales contract. At that point in time, we can tell them basically whether it's a red, yellow, green, and the level of additional compliance oversight that is required to be provided to that agreement. The analogy that I use is frequently is When people are applying or going out and buying a house and they want to know how much house they can afford, they go to the bank's website and say, I make $50,000 a year and I'd like to buy a $250,000 house. Do I qualify for that mortgage? It'll give you a red, yellow, green and gives you the general parameters of what you can do. Then you go through the pre-approval process where you provide additional information and it identifies what risks may be associated with the mortgage. You provide some basic information, but it's not until underwriting that you actually provide copies of your bank statements, your W-2s. Our process basically works the same way in terms of helping the business qualify a contract or a third party 
and then say what's creating risk and how to manage it. And that's how we partner with our business. It really is a partnership with the business. If any, did your data analytics program morph or grow beyond your original creation, or did you keep it really within the uh, parameters of what you've described? The way that it has evolved over the years is when we started off, you know, I always go back to the taking a prioritized risk-based approach. And seven years ago, we were focused on a defined set of corruption risks. And so when we initially built it, we were focused on aggregating data that was specifically applicable to the sales contracts. Once we had a good idea about how to manage our sales contracts, basically in every risky sales contract, there's a risky third party involved. We expanded what we were doing to monitor corruption risk in our third parties. But once we had aggregated all of that data in our compliance data lake, we then started to assess how else we could leverage this data to provide the same sort of risk scoring for other risk scenarios. And so it could be payments that Microsoft is making. For example, market development fund payments that we are making. We have all this, all of this information about partners that we're doing business with that we're not just selling to, but we're buying from. So we could then start to do some sort of procurement risk analysis of it. We had a general idea when we started down this path that there'd be other use cases, but I don't think that we fully understood how quickly it would grow and how many use cases that we could address with this approach. At the highest level, I think what the approach allows us to do is risk score anything that's transactional in nature. So we started off by focusing our on sales contracts because they created the most risk for the company. But we can restore anything that's transactional in nature, whether it's a, a sales contract, a supplier contract, whether it is a subcontract, and we can restore anything that's relationship-based. So it doesn't have to just be our channel partner, or our sales partner. Again, it could be our suppliers, it could be our vendors, it could be the real estate companies that we work with. And so once we got in and understood the power of analytics and how we could go from data to insight to action, we just lit up a lot of other scenarios that we could apply the same methodology and know how. Alan, I'd like to turn now to your current role, which I believe you took in February of 2021 as Director of Legal Compliance Innovation. Could you describe what that role is, or at least how, how it's come to you today? And then maybe what are some of the challenges you are currently seeing? Thanks for asking about this. And so as I've described, I've been on this journey from business person to attorney, to compliance professional, to a business person again. And the way that it really happened is as we were developing the first party solution, the solution to create an early warning and monitoring system at Microsoft, that's what we were focused on. We were focused on managing Microsoft's risk. As you can imagine, as part of our investigation, we had an opportunity to share what we were doing with the Department of Justice. And if you are a 
a peer company to Microsoft and you are aware that we are being investigated, that we're building out this program, you would like to learn what we are doing. Uh, when the DOJ issued the most recent guidance about the importance of having a data-driven compliance program, I received lots of telephone calls and emails about this is all the stuff that you've been talking about the last few years. And so when I'd received those calls, people were interested in building similar solutions. And they wanted to know if Microsoft had an off-the-shelf solution that they could purchase. And that's where I expressed how we worked with various partners to develop these sorts of solutions and how we've been working with PwC on our implementation. And so really, it became a conversation about how we could deliver these solutions into the marketplace. I was still sitting in the compliance organization within legal at that point in time. So I was trying to incubate basically an opportunity to commercialize these solutions out of the legal department. But when I was doing that, I was having lots of conversations with general counsels and, and chief compliance officers, not just about these specific risk-based solutions, but how do you actually digitally transform a legal department or a compliance department? And it identified an opportunity to Microsoft. We hadn't been overly focused. We had some focus on selling technologies into law firms, but not necessarily what I call the business of law or the practice of law in corporate legal departments with alternative legal service providers. So I was asked to move out of the legal department and into a business organization where I'm really focused on identifying and incubating market-making opportunities for legal and compliance solutions. How do we help legal departments, law firms, alternative legal service providers digitally transform in response to all of the changing conditions? The big challenges that I, that I have around this is helping people really understand the ecosystem. And what I mean by that is delivering these type of solutions take a variety of stakeholders, both within a company, mentioned at Microsoft, how Yes, we have a compliance analytics program that was originally created out of our legal department or our compliance department, required partnership with finance and internal audit with, with HR. But then you look outside of a company and who they need to work with to manage their legal and compliance risk. And it goes to uh, working with law firms, working with compliance consultants, alternative legal service providers legal tech vendors, and really helping people understand how all of this ecosystem works together to address these challenges. When you look at it is compared to other corporate functions, legal and compliance has lagged behind finance and HR and their digital transformations. It's the cultural challenge. So the cultural challenge is the next big one we face. And then finally, oftentimes, the folks that I'm working with aren't thinking necessarily strategically about a three horizons or a five-year roadmap in terms of the decisions that they're making today, how it will influence their ability to deliver certain outcomes several years in the future and helping them think more holistically just because that's not the way that necessarily a legal professional has been, has been trained. 
So I also come out of uh, the corporate world uh, after a lengthy trial career, and you hit upon two of my observations. One is, frankly, I don't think I've ever met a more set of conservative people than I've ever met inside of a corporate legal department. So there's that challenge. But also your second point, and, and that's the one that really struck me, Alan, which is in the legal department I was in, in an energy services company, I mean, we never strategized. We never thought about where are we going to be one, three, five years down the road. It was just, there's a stack of contracts. These business guys needed these yesterday. You know, please sit down and do them. Those are really changes, I think, that a lot of corporate legal departments are going to have to to embrace. Are you having conversations with people? Are people open to these ideas? Or is it really a much bigger challenge than even I believe? It is a big challenge, and in some ways, As you look at what's come out of the pandemic, what I mean by that is there has been pressure for three to five years for companies to digitally transform. As I mentioned, legal departments have been laggards in that area for a number of reasons. But I think what has happened with the pandemic is that the profile of general counsels and chief compliance officers has increased. They've had more of a seat at the table from an active perspective. They're helping other members of the C-suite think through risks associated with responding to the pandemic. And as part of that, having this elevated profile is now they're being looked at not just as a cost center, but also as a, as a business enabler. It's a double-edged sword in that you have the increased profile, but now you're being looked at as a business. And so you start to face some of the same cost efficiency, productivity, being expected to be report out on certain KPIs, metrics in a way that I don't think that general counsels and chief compliance officers have historically been asked to respond. And so when they're being asked to respond on these sorts of KPIs, metrics, you have to have the data that supports it. And that starts to amplify the need to be throwing off this sort of data that allows you to measure your performance. So I think that that has helped raise the profile, helped accelerated the digital transformation because they have to participate at the same level as other members of the C-suite. With that becomes a development of new skills in terms of thinking about these sorts of problems strategically. And I'm definitely seeing it on a daily basis. So perhaps one other route that we, meaning you and I actually might collectively to try to start doing or advocating is this type of digital transformation change being taught in law schools. I was privileged to teach a compliance class at a law school in Houston this past term. And it really struck me that many of the digital concepts that you've implemented at Microsoft and that I talked about during the term were very new and different to the students I was talking to. This was not something they had been trained on in in any other class. It was a much more traditional law school training. Is that an area that perhaps, as I said, the collective we and others in our field could start uh, moving forward as well? 100%. Oftentimes, I speak on the topics of digital compliance offices, 
or digital legal departments or digital legal practices and exactly what that means. And when you look at it, and this is a little bit of a Microsoft-centric perspective, is you take Microsoft technology and it is the equivalent of factory floor technology for a lot of legal professionals. They're working in and out. They're working in Word, which is great. But there are a lot of other interesting technologies that supplement the factory floor. What is the opportunity to bring those into your front office and back office practices? But then you start to think about how these different solutions can talk together to fundamentally change your business and practice. What I mean by that is when you look at a legal department, why isn't a legal department leveraging CRM or customer relationship management software? Why aren't they automatic? Why aren't more firms or departments automating their conflicts checks? How do you automate timekeeping with your contract drafting with the email that you have opened up to draft it? And you start connecting some of those solutions. But think about what you could do three to five years from now where there's the quote-unquote single pane of glass where you are running your practice of both front office and back office through basically a single experience. And what I mean by that is not necessarily that it is a single Microsoft solution, but that all of the technologies have the ability to interoperate with each other in a safe, secure way. When I talk about a digital practice, that's what I'm talking about. Alan, I'd like to now turn into the future. And you talked about really how the coronavirus health crisis over the past year accelerated the digital transformation of both compliance functions and now corporate legal functions. I'd like to turn to the point you raised on your kind of challenge number three, which was strategic thinking. What do corporate in-house types, law firms, and corporate compliance functions need to be thinking about into 2025 and perhaps even beyond around this digital transformation? Yeah. And so one as we look at what has happened over the last year is it's amazing to think back where you may have been in March when you were sent home to work remotely for many people. And basically, overnight, people went from face to lots, lots of people went from face to face meetings to working in a remote environment. And the pressure that it put on our industry, anywhere from how you interact with clients and employees in a 100% virtual world to how we kept courts up and running. And the fact that all of the policies, standards, procedures weren't in place to support a virtual first world. Identified lots of uh, cracks, fissures in the system that We've made a lot of improvement, and that's why it's really accelerated the digital transformation in our industry. As I look out towards 2025, yeah, I look at it as, hey, let's start defining the strategy, the path forward, the three horizons today. Think about where where we or whether a legal department or law firm wants to go onto their journey 
and think about how the steps you're taking today will allow you to reach that final destination. So when I have lots of conversations with, let's say, a general counsel and they want, they think to digitally transform that they need the greatest, latest and greatest contract lifecycle management system. And yes, they do need a contract lifecycle management system, but they need to think about it from a strategy perspective in terms of, does this decision today allow me to have capabilities that I want to have in 2025? Or am I just creating another data silo? And thinking about how all of these pieces fit together, not just today, but how they're going to fit together in the future. Now, I've been talking a lot about technology, but really it's people, process, and technology. You have to think about your solutions or where you want to go on your digital transformation across all three of those dimensions. And so the big thing is, is I always talk about what outcomes are we trying to drive? Where do we want to get to? And how do the decisions we make today accrue to the benefit or to drive that outcome? Alan, we are nearing the end of our time for this episode, but I have a special bonus question that I wanted to ask you. And I want to take you back to your undergrad days at Whitman College. My daughter <laughs> attended Whitman. And I want you to tell us about being a DJ on the radio at Whitman. Yeah, well, that, that was part of the quote-unquote Whitman experience. For the people that aren't familiar with it, Whitman College is a small liberal arts college. Gosh, probably about 1,400 students located in, at that point in time, the wheat fields of Walla Walla, Washington, southeast of Washington. Uh, now it is known for wineries. Uh, it's changed a lot over the years. But I embrace the liberal arts experience. And so in addition to being a history major, playing baseball, writing on the school newspaper, I also hosted a radio show on the campus radio station, KWCW, that probably had a broadcast distance of five or 10 miles. And the claim to fame that I have for our late night show was I actually was able to play some albums backwards, manually spin them around and uncode some of the hidden messages. And so I can validate that I heard hidden messages in a Led Zeppelin album and a Beatles album. So there you go. I buried Paul. <laughs> the uh, Unfortunately, now, Alan, we are at the end of this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics you've raised today, where could they go? They can reach out directly to me at alan, A-L-A-N dot Gibson, G-I-B-S-O-N at Microsoft.com or hit me up via LinkedIn. And I'm happy to continue the conversation. Hopefully my passion about digitally transforming legal and compliance came through. Always uh, happy to continue the conversation. It's a huge opportunity for all of us and love to have other people on the journey with us. Alan, thank you so much. As I said, long overdue. And I hope that we might be able to continue the conversation into the future. I hope so, too. Thank you very, very much. 
If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses.